0: Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists who are working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Goa buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen welcomes Deborah Gray, who will discuss how grief and loss impact attachment. And now your host, Karen Doyle-Buckwalter.
1: So I am here again today on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast, and I am so excited to, to share about my guest today, who is Deborah Gray. Um, many listeners are going to recognize her name as she's been pretty prolific in terms of writing books and she's doing a lot of teaching and training Um, and so I'm very excited to have her here today. We're going to zero in a little bit on the topic of grief and loss as it relates to um, attachment and adoption. I um, was sharing uh, earlier with, with Deborah that in her first book, which came out in 2002, the way she wrote about grief and loss for the children, I thought was really striking um, and really impacted me. And so, welcome, Deborah. So good to have you here.
2: Well, it's a real pleasure to be on this program with you, Karen. And, you know, kudos to you for your emphasis on attachment, for your contribution to the field and your recognition of the needs of children and their families when they're uh, walking through this process of joining families and especially when they have a much bumpier route so good job you
1: oh thank you thank you so so deborah um when we think about i remember uh as i said reading about this you know years ago when that that first book came out and even really obvious things. I feel like I wasn't considering, like you're, you might be losing your birth order. You might be losing your, your faith tradition. You know, there are all of these things involved um, that are changes and losses um, that I think that we just don't think about. Your school, <laughs> you know, all of these things, if you're moving to, a, to an adoptive home or moving around in foster care, these add up to have an impact.
2: Yes, well, when I think of some of the losses that children have, some of those losses are core losses in attachment, Mm -hmm. and those are, we have lost somebody, you know, and anytime we lose our attachment figure, our systems respond in a profound way. When we move, especially in sudden moves from our attachment figure, we find that children's neuroendocrine systems are held in balance by their primary caregiver. Neuroendocrine, you know, if you didn't decide to go to social work school or a psychology PhD, it just means your brain hormone systems or that which keeps you in sync with it's time to eat, it's time to sleep. Um, What we find is that the serotonin systems get real uneven. And that's what makes us kind of happy and pleasant. And we also find that the cortisol levels will become inverse for highly stressed kids. And nothing stresses a child quite so much as losing their caregiver. Mm -hmm. And so what we find is that the kiddos are very, very tired in the morning. And they're not tired in the evening. They're less likely to be alert at the times we expect them to be alert. So this makes it kind of challenging from the parental end. It makes it challenging from the parental end because all these shifts mean that also children are less amenable to attachment. Mm-hmm. You know, When we're in loss, it's very similar to depression in that we're really turned away from those abilities to connect to another person now we might grab on for survival, but that's very different than one of those truer connections that we get with attachment when we where we believe that person's going to be there for us uh-huh. and so sudden moves, especially have a profound impact on children. Any move will have an impact on children uh-huh. Here's the thing if our primary caregiver And see the child not as this is the child I finally have. Let me celebrate, but I may be internally separate uh, celebrating. But I have to recognize that my little one is in a state of loss. Mm. Then that primary caregiver will set up the environment in a very buffered, highly nurturing way, and then the caregiver is not going to expect a lot of connection for. a while, mm-hmm. or they'll recognize that the child will go back and forth, maybe connecting, playing for a little while, and then pushing away. It can be very confusing if you don't think of that my child's in loss. Mm-hmm. my child's in grief, and perhaps my child is in traumatic grief, yes a lot of children when they're moved it's a very sudden, abrupt, traumatic move, and yeah. so. If we have that understanding coming forward, right in the beginning, we do a little better. But then for many of our parents, if they know that as much as possible, they're going to be uh, replicating some of the schedule and uh, some of the smells and bedding and food that the child's had before, that's going to reduce some of the disorientation and shock for children. Mm-hmm. Uh You know, so sometimes we'll say, you know, could we just buy that child's pillow from the former foster parents? How much do you want for the crib? We'll replace it, or for their day bed. You know, if it's at all practical, we keep those things. One (laughs) of the parents said to me, you know, I read that we were supposed to keep the child's things. So when I went to China, all the other parents in my group, they were told, don't take the child's clothes, leave them here. But they all took my, their children's clothes and just left new outfits behind. I didn't. I was such a good girl. And my child cried more than any other child. I regret it today. So sometimes you have to get yourself ready ahead. I will start advocating for my child from the very beginning.
1: You know, because... yeah. Yes. so wonderful uh how you're bringing in um such practical application as as what you're saying and and we i want listeners to know that we are going to have a handout about some practical things that that parents can do that will accompany the podcast but i just love what you're saying about um you know could we have that pillow could we have that bed um you know those items that are familiar to the child and to the child's brain that um, could at least help a bit to buffer uh, what is going on with them.
2: It's because children don't have the ability to hold on to uh, a life narrative until elementary school. You know, and often they're, um, and because kids are such sensory learners it's just an easy way to calm them down. Mm-hmm. I just got a suggestion from Andrea Chatwin, who's kind of a new practitioner from a child's song. Anyway, she said that something that she has been suggesting to parents is that they send some comfort items that smell like the parent, some soothing tapes that are parents singing songs, Kind of familiarize children with uh the smell and um the presence of the parent early on, which I thought was just a brilliant thing to do, yes, and um something that I've started to do is when I have children who are somewhat wary and is i you know many kids have like a superhero or a a, a figure that they really like. And so you can have your picture taken with some of these um, stuffed animals or, um, you know, special superheroes and send that on to the child. Or you can have your face and self pasted in to the family photo and start to break down that barrier that children have of stay away from dangers. And that's a preemptive thing that you can do to help children, not to feel quite so overwhelmed if the placement isn't going to be an emergency.
1: Yeah, if there's you know, some of that time to, to think carefully and and prepare. I'm I'm reminded as you're speaking um, of something we've done in our residential program at Shawtock. Now, these are children that um, are adopted and are going to be going back to their family, but... Um, we took a family photo and used an iron on transfer to put the family photo on their pillow um at night, you know oh. so, yeah, yeah, and yeah, and um also, as kind of a little transitional object, we took a family photo and kind of used our thing that we make name tags with, so it's like a kind of hard piece of it looks like a credit card but put like a picture of their family on that for them to just keep in their pocket or, or things like that so yeah i just think those things that you're suggesting just really add up and and really make a difference
2: well children have the initial shock and grief from losing someone they're attached to but then as you know there are grief stages that children will go through yes and so you know, for a lot of our parents, they move children through the initial phase of joining, grieving the lost parent, and so forth. But then at various stages, they're going to have a chance to work through losses that children have. You know, it's seven or eight, uh, for some children, they get there much sooner. You know, children will have the chance to work through uh, that first segment where they realize that they have a loss that most other children didn't go through. Mm-hmm. You know, and there, we consolidate identity a little bit, build some resilience there. Children often will have some grief and loss around Mother's Day, your birthdays, um, if the, the anniversaries of various moves. At times, you know, if they are um, looking at group pictures, Kids might say something to them about them not looking like parents, you know. And there's a loss there of not looking like the people in your family. And so yeah. those those rate those will all be um, activated. And then in adolescence, we find again that children have to separate and figure out how they're the same and different from two sets of parents. For some of our kids, this is really really tough because. Just in the process of separating, they'll find that some of the grief comes back. One way to handle that is to become very controlling. Mm -hmm. Sometimes with kids, when I see that they're becoming somewhat more preoccupied, they're kind of grumpy, they seem like something's the matter. We just spend a little extra time in the morning with them. You know, or we spend more time and make ourselves emotionally available to them. And then, instead of waiting for them to tell us what's wrong, sometimes you can say, "You know, I don't know if I'm right or wrong, but it sounds like your mind is trying to work on something. And I'm wondering if you're having feelings in inside of you inside feelings of something sad that's happened or something scary that when sad. And some of the younger children will think of it as the not good feeling. And so for many of the children, they're not surfacing it, especially in the early ages, is a particular, I am missing Mama Matilda. You know, if that's how they call their first or natal mother. But it's more like, I have that feeling of loss that's come up for me. And especially for children who don't have a narrative memory yet, that is, that memory that is time-bound. Our hippocampus holds time-bound memory. And it comes online very early as kids, about 18 months. Usually you see it more reliably, 20, 22, 26 months very first narrative memory anyway their memory of loss will be in the more of the sensory emotional areas one of the girls was talking to me and she's um, a late teen now and she said as many children say to me i get that feeling inside of me and i'm both sad and really scared And I carry that feeling with me all the time that I've lost something and I might lose something again, and I'll do anything not to feel that feeling. Mm. And what she's really surfacing is the kind of feeling that she had when she was left in a children's home in Russia. And she could never hold on to a caregiver. And so there is this kind of lost traumatic stress state because her Aloneness was so extreme it was to the point of abandonment. And so this mixes for them. And so we treat the grief trauma of that state as traumatic stress, infant traumatic stress. And then help them get more into uh, uh, the the more linguistic areas of their brain that are more time bound because that will help them. So, in other words, we provide empathy, but, you know, for her, you know, I maintain connection with her emotionally, but then at the same time, I help her by um, finding markers in her timeline. Mm -hmm. So, when did you first learn to play your violin? For example, that is an important thing for her. She said seven. Mm
1: -hmm. Okay,
2: when did you, what did you play for your first recital? I played this piece. How about your second recital? I played this piece. How about your third recital? I can't remember, but I can remember my fourth recital. When did you first play publicly at your school? Well, I played this. And then I played first violin in middle school. And then I played second violin in high school. And now I'm first violin in high school. And see, as she does that, she can move over to parts of her brain that are that have a timeline that have a clock, what Alice would call you know our our left brain cortex
1: yeah, and I think too yeah. um. Another thing we're talking about here that appears in the attachment literature a lot is the need for a coherent autobiographical narrative that, you know, this is how all this fits together. This is what happened to me. This is how it affects me and who I am now. Um, And there's often, you know, so many big gaps and holes in that (laughs) for the kids that we work with. Yes. And
2: Karen, a lot of the reason they don't want to go back into it is because they don't have enough support for some of the overwhelming feelings that they experience because when children have certain experiences and they are led out by grief and especially traumatic grief then they shove them down if there's not someone known and capable of caring for them Mm-hmm. And what we find is, as in the experience I just related, kind of circling back and finishing that, that those kids don't want to go there because they are afraid that they're going to get lost in those experiences. You know, and if you can describe that you have some techniques and ways to help them move past that experience, or you can provide comfort and solace and walk them through that then their brain will begin to integrate that in the presence of a caring other. So you teach them how to modulate some of the emotional states, but also you make meaning of it. Mm-hmm. It really helps them out. Mm-hmm. So what we find is that if we have children who have unresolved grief, unprocessed grief in the early years, it's directly correlated to, um, clinical depression by teenage years. And you and I both work with children who have attachment issues that surface as clinical depression. You know, and if we go back, we can find John Allen first just, you know, noted this um, in his his work in the Menninger Clinic. And then this has been um, discussed by many authors since then. Yes. Yeah. Yes: Not to get too clinical, but I am a clinician, so <laughs> but you know we have to show children that first they're not going to get lost in the grief, but you will reliably walk them through it. you'll care, and that you can help them feel better. that the grief process isn't we're just going to expose you to it and hurt you, but as we work it through, they'll feel better.: Yes, yes. it's not going to stay so hard.
1: Yeah, I think that, um, and I'm sure you and other listeners have had adolescents or even um, latency age children say, I, I'm afraid if I start to cry, or I'll never stop. You know, this feeling that it's just, or, or if I let myself get angry, I don't know what I might do. I think it's this feeling that you're describing that. Um, there's a fear of not having that person, like you said, there to help regulate and process it.
2: Yes. Well, Dan Siegel says in, that for our brain to let go of defenses, we have to send a signal that there's been an intervening variable. Mm. And the practical, and then basically we send signals through six layers of cortex to. Um, the more survival centers of our brain. And for many of the kids, if I just simply say, of course, you don't want to go back and grieve that, who would ever want to re-experience that all alone? That was way too much for you. But you have people now who are not going to give up on you, who aren't going to let you go through this alone. And they'll carry some of the burden. And as I'm, clinically working with children, I still maintain a a hearty clinical practice. I'll say, and I will commit myself to making sure that it doesn't become overwhelming to you. I'll be here while you grieve, and I'll help with the pacing, so we only do a little bit at a time. Uh And I'm very strong about doing that with kids uh-huh mm-hmm. mm-hmm. but the way i go about it with kids is everybody wants to know what happened in their life and they want to know more about themselves mm-hmm. you know and so i'll help you with that process but of course you would want to know more information otherwise like all young children you'll think that everything that happened because happened because of you and that can't be good news you know, so you know, I would like to be able to give you some more information that that tends to be a cell that works,
1: yes, yes, and I think too, um, and maybe you would speak to this earlier when you were mentioning parents and caregivers. you know, I wonder you know if this might be what's going on. I think that the there's still this myth out there, um which. I think Sherry Eldridge's book was the one that really break, broke through to me about that, that if they're not talking about it, we shouldn't, I mean, let's not bring up these hard things. If they're not talking about it, we won't talk about it. And and really the opposite is, is really the case that being able to open space and maybe even initiate some talk about this rather than if they're not saying anything, they're fine. And let's just keep rolling along. What What are your thoughts about that?
2: Well, we're, and Sherry Eldridge is a friend of mine, but she's, you know, she's correct in saying that kids need us to bring it up. Now, I don't necessarily say to kids, you know, I think you're grieving your birth parent when they're crying. Uh, um, You know, I, I, what I find that works a little bit better for me you know, because sometimes when kids are two or three, um, I, do, I don't want to create a mood state that it isn't there or an attribution that isn't there. You know, some people will say that. I'm a little reluctant to do that. What I will say to kid, parents is, kids don't have abstract thought and they don't have the ability to even put things into words. And so you can bring up some things to them, kind of like, you know, some kids are wondering where birth parents are. You know, they're for whatever parents call the birth parents, uh, first parents, natal parents. Some of the people call them like if the birth parents first name is Amanda, they'll call them uh, Mama Amanda. But whatever they call it, you know, some kids wonder where they are. If they're all right, some kids wonder is there any chance I'm going back to live with her? Other kids wonder is she missing me? Other kids wonder if their parents know that she might be missing them. You know, just whatever developmental age your child is, you give them uh, an, an option to opt in, opt out. And sometimes I'll just put up two hands is it this or this you can point to the one that's a yes or a no the reason we do that is many children have auditory processing problems they can't rephrase what you just said mm-hmm. but they know which one they have a feeling of reven- resonance about or they you can just say you can just say does not apply for a little bit older kids. But often kids will start to endorse where they're at. And some children at four, it's like, no, I don't miss her. At six, it's like, I miss her very much. You know, I now know that somebody important in my life is not available to me. Okay. Mm-hmm. But these are all things that we bring up in a way that kids are able to share their interior world mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. us. Otherwise, as grief, which is a normal part of the adoption experience, comes up, children feel that they need to hide that or keep it to themselves. And then it creates more and more difficult mood states and some depression in many kids. Mm -hmm. And they, they become kids who by teenage years feel that they're inauthentic. Uh-huh. I had one kid who said to me, I feel like I have to be somebody who gives adoption a good name. And actually, I have depression and I miss my birth mom in, on National Adoption Month, this being National Adoption Month. When our whole family goes, you know, and has some kind of a celebration, I just don't even want to go. And the mom said, well, it's not a piece of cake for me either. We're having a hard time, the two of us. And she said, well, why don't we stop pretending? You're having a hard time. I'm having a hard time with you. You know, I'm trying to support you. But we've just had a really tough last couple of years around this. So how about if we just hang out together and say, adoption has its sad t- spans of time sometimes but at least we've got each other you know but Mm -hmm. do you notice how there's an authenticity about that relationship but i've followed them up over the years and don't see this dyad very often but they have a very close relationship Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and some of it is sometimes my daughter misses her birth family her birth culture there's not a lot we can do about that except hug her, give her some consolation during that time, and know that she's seen and loved. Mm-hmm. I wish I could take it away, but I can't. Right. And that is a more legitimate relationship.
1: Right. Yeah. Not not just rainbows and uniforms, as, as they're saying in a lot of the things yeah. that we're reading. You know, there's multiple sides to this. So. Yeah yeah
2: yeah but i mean our most satisfying relationships are ones in which we are seen authentically yes you know and that's part of the process of life Yes. You know, Many of us have people in our family who really are very different than we expected. <laughs> and I'm sure we've had a few surprises ourselves. <laughs> right. I <laughs> and bought Solomon's book, um, Far From the Tree, you know, and, and it, you know, he, as an adoptive parent, he talks about many things in our families that we just didn't expect. Mm-hmm. And the joy of, you know, overcoming hurdles so that we are close. Right. We are truly seen and loved and accepted by others.
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a beautiful statement to kind of wind down here on. Um, but I, uh, just really appreciate this discussion and, and, you know, the practical things that you're highlighting as well as a lot of the emotional pieces. So I, I want to thank you for that. I also want you to let listeners know that the teaching that you're doing, I know you have the the course with Attach, and uh, you're doing many other things, and have a newish book out, right? Newish? It just, actually, today is its release day. It's Promoting
2: Attachments, okay. Hands-On Techniques to Use with Your Clients. Yes. It's by Norton, and today is its release day.
1: So, All right. Well, I've November been be seeing some of the pre-release stuff. So, uh yes. aren't, aren't we lucky um uh, to to have you on here. Uh that's an exciting day.
2: <laughs> I'll send something for your listeners. Um that's a handout for parents to be able to use so that they can comfort their own children. Certainly the new book promoting attachments also has a lot of information on grief and loss and how to fold that into the therapeutic process. But you know, I thank you for the chance to talk to your audience. If I could end on one note, part of secure attachment is that authentic love and co-regulation of the other that really transcends differences or obstacles. has the ability to reach out and authentically embrace the other person at every level.
0: Thank you for joining us for this edition of attachment theory in action. Please follow our site Chatdock.com or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play or Podbean for future podcasts. Additionally, be sure to check out the link in the podcast description for a very insightful handout provided by Ms. Gray. If you enjoyed our broadcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to the Knowledge Center at Chadoc.com. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.